This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Father's Day to all the dads. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Apologies mean nothing if the same behavior continues. This is the viewpoint expressed by advocates for Black people in Toronto following Wednesday's apology from the city's police chief. James Raymer made what he called an unreserved apology after releasing Toronto police data showing racialized people in Toronto are 20 to 60 percent overrepresented among those who faced violence when interacting with police in 2020. In addition, the report found Black residents were 230% more likely to have a police officer point a gun at them when they appeared to be unarmed over white people. Just after the report was released, I was joined for early reaction by Dr. Wesley Critchlow, professor in the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at Ontario Tech University, and civil liberties lawyer Julian Falconer. I would start with the findings. Uh, what the findings sadly confirm is what folks, frankly, on the ground and in communities already know. And uh, it, it remains uh, absolutely tragic. And, you know, people experience this in real time uh, with their kids, uh, with their, uh, their brothers, their sisters, their family. Uh, you, you have parents that are concerned about when their youth are going to go out for the evening, what is going to happen to them and their welfare in interactions with people who are supposed to be in charge of keeping them safe. So, you know, the problem with all of this is the navel-gazing is now a stretch, right? Yes, this makes a perfect case for why race-based data needs to be compiled in a responsible way. Uh, But Uh, You know, an apology isn't going to do it. Uh, There needs to be an action plan. This notion of ongoing consultation, it may be laudable, but it's the opposite of an action plan. And I understand uh, there are those who would say that they're betwixt and between, they're caught, because if they implement action without consultation, they'll be criticized. There has been so much consultation. Mm -hmm. Human rights reports. Commission released interim findings uh, a number of years ago, 2018, I believe is the year. This, you know, goes back to the Cole Gittins report in the mid-90s concerning systemic discrimination in the justice system. Surely by now, (laughs) some actions could have been announced today, right? And that's the concern, is that we are veritable gerbils on a wheel. Same old, same old. This is bad. We acknowledge it. It's terrible. But no actual implementation strategies. That's the problem here. 
I'd like to, to bring in Dr. Wesley Critchlow now, professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. Your reaction to today's report and apology as a Black person? It's not new. So the previous caller was quite clear on, on, on highlighting what previous studies have done. And we can go way back to, to um, 1978 with Andrew Buddy Evans when this work started, for lack of, an, for lack of documenting. So the community since 1978 has been addressing these issues. And as a result, we have had a number of police reforms. So there, what I question with this, this new data is not that it's not good, but I see this data as another way of, of getting in the way of other structural reforms that should have happened a long time ago. Well, I also question to what extent are the researchers involved in the community to get a counter perspective from the community about their own sort of data collection on policing issues. We have the police data right now. We don't have the community data. I question the 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 the, the degree by which they say it, it, we are stopped. I think we are stopped at a much higher alarming rate than they have presented here. Ah, and I think um, when we look at earlier studies, the Cold Kittens Report works by uh, Chris, Chris Williams and a whole slew of other people, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, the work by um, Black Action Defense Committee, we have seen that these numbers are higher than what has been presented here today. What we have here right now is what I will call aggregate of data of the entire population. We don't have specific disaggregated data of Regent Park, Jane Finch, community housing, etc. We don't have disaggregated data of each community to really highlight the, 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 uh, the brevity of the problem. When you do an average, you, 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 you dilute the, the seriousness of the problem by doing average. But if we do disaggregated by communities, we would see a different picture. Dr. Wesley Critchlow, professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University, and civil liberties lawyer Julian Falconer. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We were still talking about this police report and Chief Raymer's unwanted apology on Thursday when our Tune Into the Town panel joined Fight Back. To recap, the internal report revealed what Black and racialized people have been talking about for decades, that there has been a disproportionate amount of force, aggression, and violence toward Black, Indigenous, and racialized people by Toronto police versus how white people are treated in similar circumstances. The numbers were tallied from Toronto Police contact with individuals during 2020. Chief Raymer says he and others at the Toronto Police Service will fix the problem and claims work is already being done to do so. But what remains to be seen is what work has actually been done and what will be done going forward. Lauren O'Neill is Senior News Editor of Blog TO. Brad Bradford is Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 Beaches East York. And Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village. The report highlights what anecdotally everybody already knew. So I think that um, what was really needed is more concrete measures of how those numbers are going to shift. And there is no question that... Um, there is systemic racism in, in the force. And even when I was a counselor, there was, you know, a support for the police to continue to card 
uh, individuals in certain neighborhoods, which means that they could be pulled over for no reason and asked to produce ID or have a bag searched, which is completely egregious. And yet, even eight years ago, it was deemed acceptable police practice. And so, uh, Council Bradford can speak to how things have shifted or not, but there is no question that it exists. And but the, but the outstanding question remains is that okay, you can apologize, but what are you going to do? And and I think that that's where that's where they. The initiative fell short yesterday and, and why that there was the reaction there was. I think that is the overall sentiment. Um, Brad, we'll go over to you. A city Council now in 2022 receiving this information. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I'd agree with, with a lot of what Karen said there. I mean, this was uh, not new information. We heard from racialized and Indigenous communities for many, many years that the, the challenges with... Um, over-policing and use of force, and now we have the data. And and to be fair, folks have been calling for this data for many, many years as well. And so this is really a landmark report in bringing these numbers forward, and I think it, it demonstrates very clearly the problem. Uh, and to your point, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily lay out the solutions, and I understand why people are upset about this. This is an extremely emotionally charged uh, discussion. It's, uh, you know, it's very disheartening. And uh, the change and the reform that we want to see uh, is a slow process. And that's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. So we've been having these conversations in a big way at council since back to uh, 2020, uh, the fallout of George Floyd and what we were seeing in the U.S. And of course, that's not so dissimilar from some of the challenges that we see here in our own city. But major reform work is underway. But when you are when you are bringing reform to all of our agencies and institutions, and certainly the Toronto Police, that takes time. Uh, we are now piloting a program to have um, uh, mental health crisis responders to to mental health crisis response on on nine one one. We're investing and in, and in focusing on building trust and relationships in different neighborhoods with our neighborhood police officer program. But I think it's very clear that there is a lot more work to do. So the apology from the chief, you know, I think that is a, a welcome step. There needs to be accountability and ownership of that. Uh, that was really important. But of course, that's not enough. And of course, that's only a first step. And uh, I think everybody understands why uh, why people are upset right now. Lauren, that apology, though, was not well received. In fact, it was really, it was almost found to be offensive by many advocates in the Black community. Yeah, so uh, Beverly Bain, who is a U of T professor in gender and women's studies and a longtime activist advocating for people in the queer community, in the Black community, for women, she actually spoke up at the press conference to uh, Chief Raymer directly and said, we don't accept your apology. She said that it is insulting to Black people. How many reports can we make and spend money on creating before somebody actually does something? I think that is what a lot of members of the black community were saying, like, save your apology. Just stop harassing us. And I don't speak on behalf of of members of the black community, but that was what a lot of the sentiment I was seeing. And people really loved uh, Bain's kind of like retort against Raymer. So she's like now going viral on the Internet for being like so cool and badass and speaking up. And yeah, so if you have a chance to see that video, it's really cool. Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Brad Bradford, Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 Beaches, East York, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Tune into the town every Thursday on Fight Back with Libby Snymer after the noon news.
I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, lifting COVID vaccine mandates for travelers in Canada. What will this mean for the already congested airports? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Starting tomorrow, COVID vaccine mandates for plane and train travelers within Canada and on outbound international flights are suspended. Health information will still need to be provided through the Arrive Can app upon return to Canada, and masking in airports and on planes and trains leaving or arriving in Canada will continue to be required. The feds say science points to the reasoning for dropping the COVID vaccine mandates, but almost certainly they must have been motivated to improve the delays and backlogs at the airports, most notably Pearson Airport. Joining me to discuss the suspension of COVID vaccine mandates for travel, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc., Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, and Dr. Barry Pecus, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. I started the conversation by asking Dr. Pecus if this decision makes sense from a scientific point of view. It's very clear that this had to happen uh, or was, was bound to happen at some point. Um, nothing changed overnight between last week and this week in terms of making that decision. Um, but it, it does make sense from the perspective of most Canadians and where we are in the pandemic right now, certainly in Ontario, overall in Canada. However, um, that does still mean that uh, air travel is going to be um, somewhat less safe for certain people, and meaning, you know, there are some people who are immunocompromised, who are anxious about it, but but who, you know, where there is a, a genuine um, risk uh, that, that they would experience. It's a small number of people. Um, but for those people, you know, I, I certainly uh, feel for them because this does put them in a more difficult situation. For all other people, uh, especially people who are not vaccinated and are wanting to travel, I'm sure this would be a relief. So there's there's definitely many sides to this. From a scientific perspective, you know, when you ask me that question, I need to always say there's a vaccine science perspective, there's a public health science, but there's also a social science and a political science perspective. And all of those are scientific and valid and all need to be considered. Trevor McPherson, uh, what was your reaction to hearing the news about uh, suspending the vax mandates? I think what we just heard is that this is um, a complicated issue, and it is a bit of a balancing act for policymakers right now. We do applaud uh, the removal of vaccination requirements for domestic and outbound international travel, and we think that's a step in the right direction, not only for travelers, but also for workers. Um, Although most workers in the Toronto, uh, at Toronto Pearson specifically, are vaccinated, there are still hundreds that are on the sidelines right now. And... um, it, we're in a situation right now where the airport can use every trained individual uh, as possible um, to help help deal with with the current um, delays that that are being experienced. And I was speaking with uh, someone who manages a hotel uh, right at the airport, and they're experiencing a hundred uh, planned unplanned guest room bookings per day due to either canceled flights or other issues related to to their air travel and 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 some of the policies 
in place. But we do applaud the government um, for moving on this uh, and also their recent announcements of hiring um, 644 new recruits for the four largest airports and 865 in, in total. I think we've heard this isn't an overnight fix and, and certainly standing something up again in the fall. Yeah, there will be challenges um, dealing with that. And that's where you know, we've been calling on governments at all levels to increase the amount of certainty, reduce the amount of uncertainty uh, so that businesses can uh, properly plan. Uh, and, and whether that pertains to the airport or whether that pertains to other restrictions that may come into place, um, I think we just need a little bit um, a higher level of predictability for our businesses. Martin Firestone, uh, how positive of an impact will this make for uh, reducing all of the congestion we've been hearing so much about at Pearson? I'm going to take the other approach. I think it's going to increase Ah. the confusion and mayhem. And I'll tell you why. If the numbers are accurate, there's 5 million unvaccinated Canadians. Domestically, I think travel has to pick up big time on Monday. I would think people haven't seen family or friends for close to three years. So big increase there. Infrastructure, I've always said, is not keeping up with the travel, yet alone this recent announcement. The most perplexing thing from my perspective is the international one. They are allowing you to leave unvaccinated, but you are going to face tremendous confusion coming back if you are unvaccinated with having to now have your quarantine plan and arrive can dock and everything completely filled. And you wouldn't believe how many people I am having questions from who think they can come back now unvaccinated with no repercussions. Uh, Not the case. So confusion galore here, and it's only going to get worse. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc., Trevor McPherson, president and CEO of the Mississauga Board of Trade, and Dr. Barry Pekis, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Russian and Belarusian players will be allowed to compete at this summer's U.S. Open Tennis Grand Slam, despite Vladimir Putin's ongoing Russian war in Ukraine. The decision was announced on Tuesday by the U.S. Tennis Association, which will adopt the approach used by the ATP and the WTA since the illegal invasion, whereby Russian and Belarusian players compete under a neutral flag. The USTA's decision comes after Wimbledon became the first elite tennis event to ban Russian and Belarusian athletes from taking part in the grass court Grand Slam. While filling in for Libby on Thursday, I was joined by retired Ukrainian tennis player Alexander Dogopolov. I believe uh, tennis has done a weak job to to clear the image of the Russian players because Obviously, what's happening is terrible, and I think they do have the the public power and influence to speak out as a group, at least. And nothing has been has been done to distance them from from the government. And we know that Putin's government has a very high support rate, and we know, presumably, few players that support him, and they have family members. So we think. Uh, at least they should have distanced themselves from from their government and from what's happening. And that hasn't happened, so I believe that they shouldn't be allowed to play because we know already a few matches against the Ukrainians, and Ukrainians could not 
mentally play against them. Mm-hmm. Even there was one retirement, and it, it, it's tough, you know. It's tough when you don't know when they haven't said, said a word, and uh, you have to play against these people. You want to make sure that they don't support it. And for now, nothing much has been done. They said, yeah, tennis plays for peace, but I believe that's not enough. Well, so under what circumstances should a player be allowed, in your mind, to be able to play for one of the big Grand Slams, uh, the U.S. Open? Would they have to openly openly hold a news conference and express that they're completely against what Vladimir Putin is doing or defect or never go back to Russia? Like, under what circumstances should these athletes be allowed to to practice their professions? I think they make a statement at least a group statement altogether, you know, like, uh, I believe the head of ATP said that uh, they are against the war, but where is at least one word from them as a group or altogether condemning their government, condemning the war? The only thing I heard from Rublev was no war in the first days of the war. But right. come on, this is, this is really not enough at this moment. After we saw Bucha, after we saw atrocities, what means no war? No, no, which war? This war, or the Second World War, or uh, should Ukraine stop fighting? They have to have a position because I think morally they, they just have to. It's it got to a magnitude where they have to speak. And if they speak, of course, it's tough. It will be tough to punish them. And ATP or WTA has done nothing to help them do it. I haven't heard someone change uh, passports. I haven't heard someone mm-hmm. want to speak out. They're just pretending nothing is happening. If they make a statement, I would say that uh, they should keep playing and uh, and we can know that uh, they're against it and uh, everything is clear. So at the moment, it's more questions than answers. The individuals who are on the tour, so we're talking about the Daniel Medvedevs, uh, Arena Sabalenka, you know, they're traveling the world and presumably they are recipients of... Uh, what is actually happening in Ukraine, as opposed to the disinformation they're being fed if they were in Russia. So they know what's going on. They know the reality. So it seems like it would not be a stretch to stand up and and voice opposition in a real way. For sure. For sure, there's, uh, there's ways for them. Some of them live uh, not in Russia, uh, together with their families. Uh, there's different options. And I cannot believe that one or a few of them couldn't have stand up and spoken against it. But they just want to to keep in between, you know, to keep their fan base in Russia, to keep uh, keep away and just say nothing. But that's I think that's unfair, and uh, they can't just continue pretending nothing is happening. Retired Ukrainian tennis player Alexander Dogopolov in conversation with me on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Gabriella phoned from Kitchener to say she feels not only is there systemic racism within police forces, but also systemic ageism. It goes even beyond color and race. Uh, They also discriminate on age. Uh, My husband was in a pretty serious car accident about four or five years ago. The young lady who was actually at fault got off, and my husband was completely dismissed. Uh, The attitude of this particular policeman in Waterloo was appalling. It was just, it was, it was appalling and heartbreaking to see that someone could be so, um, so mean towards a person who obviously was a senior, is a senior. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Jane in Scarborough, who phoned about her firsthand experience with financial abuse of her elderly mother. My mom, at the age of 75, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The uh, doctor advised her to put my sister and I on her bank account uh, to make sure that things were okay. At 78, the Alzheimer's really took hold. My brother got a hold of her bank card and drained her bank account every single month, never paid the bills, never paid the rent. Her phone got cut off. She got evicted at the age of 79, and my sister and I were powerless to stop it. The worst part of it, too, we weren't alone. We found out this goes on so many times in so many families, and no one can stop it. Something needs to be done because elder financial abuse and elder abuse, period, has got to stop. It's got, people need to stand up and say something and stop it from happening. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.